Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio Special Live Weekend Edition. And it's not just any weekend, it's the first Friday of the month. That would be Friday, March 1st. And on the first Friday of Truth Jihad Radio's special live show, every month we have Alan <coughs> Sabrowski coming on, or at least trying to come on. Uh, <laughs> God willing, inshallah, as we say here in Morocco, we will have a better connection than last time and that those crazy hackers over at Unit 8200 will lay off us and go bother somebody else for at least one hour. Uh, Dr. Alan Zabrowski is, of course, well known as the former head of strategic studies at the uh, U.S. Army, uh, U.S. Army War College and He's a former Marine Corps officer with a lot to say. We're going to talk about a whole long list of topics here, so let's get into it. Welcome, Alan. How are you? Fine, Kevin. One correction. You're still doing Wikipedia, officer. I was never an officer. I did not retire. I was a sergeant, and I served 10 years. A little bit of detail. I want to apologize to any of your regular listeners for the interruption in the first Friday show in February. I have no idea what happened. We started off well, and then this connection dropped, and the phone died. The phone connections dropped. I couldn't even get back to you on the phone. Three minutes after the hour, I assume that's when the next speaker was on, suddenly the computer and the phone started working. This is an obvious miracle. Yeah, that's kind of like what just happened to me when I first tried to record a show with Germa Rudolph, the notorious <laughs> Holocaust revisionist. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can understand that that does it. Hopefully he's still with us. Uh, uh, groups that often that take those positions often disappear in, in unknown. But for the listeners also, and this might be for, for uh, you and Mr. Rowe as well, uh, I found a workaround and tested it on another show last week. Uh, I usually use Linux rather than Windows, and I hunted around, which is harder to hack generally, but it wasn't a month ago. And there is a Linux distribution called Cubes, but Cubes spelled with a Q, a Q-U-B-E-S, which markets itself, I shouldn't say markets itself because it's free, completely free, which presents itself as a reasonably secure operating system and it is reasonably secure it's more than that i think if you enable all of the security features as i did it takes time but whoever wants to hack into it is really 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 going to have to work for it and i don't think we're going to be discussing the kind of information that they would want to really 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 work for hacking into unless they're extremely bored and with Gaza and Ukraine, they're not bored. Uh, but that one works. And if anyone wants any assistance in in setting it up, now that I've gone through it, and it was somewhat painful for me, but I made it painful for myself by enabling every security feature, uh, contact me at Doc Brosk on Skype uh, or send me an email at docbrosk at comcast.net, and I'll be happy to assist you. So Doc Brosk would be D-O-C-B-R-O-S-K. Is that right? That's correct. That's okay, correct. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, maybe I have some listeners who are actually doing more 
top secret type stuff than I do. I'm, I'm pretty transparent. <laughs> I just put everything out there for everybody to listen to. So if the NSA wants to listen to me, they just have to turn on the radio. <laughs> Don't need to hack into my but if they, And if they want to stop, but if they want to stop you, as we found out when we were talking about something and mentioned the Holocaust, uh, remember that on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yes. they, somebody seems to be very sensitive about the Holocaust. I, I can't for understand what that would be. Well, you know, the thing is really, really intriguing about me. It's one of the one of the things that I mentioned that I'd like to talk about, but not really on that on, on the Holocaust. But it's really intriguing when you think of that being the only subject you can, you're not allowed to question, and that's become a subject of law of, of punishment and imprisonment in in many countries in in Europe and the Western world. Uh, for even questioning it, the you can you can discuss things about any other subject and any other. Well, individual well no, actually, Alan, there, there are two more two more illegal subjects now. One what? is uh, COVID and vaccine efficacy, and the other is election integrity. You're not allowed to post to YouTube that questions the integrity of any American election in history. Which is, of course, you know, news to the uh, 1876 election historians and stuff. But. Yeah, that would be that would be crazy. No, I mean that there are there are individual countries that that different things apply to, uh, and different that have different different taboos. I mean, that's that's no question at all about that. Uh, I have I have no doubt that there are some of the some Islamic countries that would not take kindly to questions about Islam. Uh, there are many others that there's open discussion within within certain limits, and there are similar things in a lot of other countries. But I'm not I'm talking about something that goes across an entire culture or transcontinental. That's that's really intriguing. Well, it's the West. But it's anyway. the West's religion. It's you, you know, no, you're not allowed to blaspheme against religion anywhere. So to find out what the religion is, wherever you happen to be, just ask yourself what you're not allowed to talk about. What can't you say? And in the West. I guess it's the Holocaust. It's the Holy Trinity well, of the I, six million, the gas chambers, and the, the extermination plant. I think that that's partly true, but it's it's also what was that uh, that nice phrase? If you want to find out who rules you, learn who you aren't allowed to criticize. That yes, that's that, a that, apocryphal that, that that yeah. But what I find really intriguing is that mathematics is also obviously on the on the the chopping block. Uh, all of the concentration camps, even if you buy into a slightly the whole Holocaust narrative, you know, all of the concentration camps have had the death toll reduced by, in some cases, as many as 90 percent. Dachau went from 220 or 240,000 down to about 22,000. Auschwitz from 4 million to 1.1 million. So the math the math ought to, the six million ought to drop according to the drop in the numbers. It's somehow you can get numbers that add up to about 1.8 million and they still equal six million. I find that really you interesting. Know, it's, it's actually worse than that, Alan. I, I was talking about this with, with Germer Rudolph the other day during mm -hmm. the interview, and he pointed out that it's it's not quite as simple as, you know, six million minus, you know, three million equals six million because prior to Auschwitz changing its plaque, from saying that more than 4 million died here to saying that 1.1 million died, 
they apparently had uh, a number of other camps where the claimed death totals, if you added them all up together, you wouldn't get six million. You would get like, you know, well over 10 million or 15 million or something ridiculous like that. So essentially, these numbers have just been pulled out of people's, um, let's say, hats. Ah, uh, don't 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 say that. <laughs> I, I was thinking of something different, but that would be, yeah, that would be yeah. unkind but, but and unspeakable. Yeah, but basically, the more you, the more I look at the Holocaust thing, the more it looks like there is a lot of this just making stuff up. You know, sort of like the forty beheaded babies of Hamas. You know, people just yeah. you know just making crazy stuff up, and somehow it gets repeated. Well, what I find really fascinating, this this is going to be something that would be worth examining on other topics as well. Um, I'm about 20, a little more than 20 years older than you, 20, 20, 23 years older than you. And when when I was growing up in the United States and in high school in the late 1950s and at college in the early 1960s in Michigan and, and Ohio, respectively, there wasn't a word about anything that added up to a that was called later a Holocaust. Nothing about gas chambers, nothing about about extermination camps, nothing about anything, any huge numbers of people murdered. Um, it was it was World War Two was strictly World War One on a vaster scale and bloodier scale. And that was it. And also, by the way, no one at that time ever talked about the real holocausts, and there were real holocausts in World War II. I'm not talking about the Holodomor under Stalin in Ukraine before World War II, but there were real holocausts, and there were German and Japanese cities. The American Air Force burned to death over 100,000 Japanese in one night in Tokyo. Uh, the American and British Air Forces burned to death God knows how many people in, in German cities. The official death toll has more German civilians being killed in World War II than German soldiers. And in Japan, it was much the same way. Far more Japanese civilians died under American attack than Japanese soldiers, sailors, airmen, and so forth in the war. And our war against civilians is one of the reasons I think that Americans however much you and I and those who think like us might wring their hands about what's happening in Gaza, there is a profound indifference, and it, and it goes beyond governmental indifference. Americans, sorry, Alison Weir, I respect your work, but Americans do know, and a lot of them do know, and if all of them knew what was happening, most wouldn't care. And that's the really sad part of it, but that's true. We wouldn't care. Well, I actually, I think it kind of depends on what you mean by no. Uh, I think if they saw it, if they were all sort of forced to see it close up and personal, they probably would care. But people have a lot of ways of distancing themselves and their emotions from information that's inconvenient. Um, but in in any case, the uh, yeah, there was also besides the war on civilians during the war. Then after the war, there was that horrific uh, ethnic cleansing of Germans as well. Uh, during I know, most I know, I know. Yeah. and murder of they, POWs. So, yeah, it's I, I saw, I saw one of, yeah. I'm sorry, I saw one of one of those studies after the war, and the the casual estimates is that at a minimum six 
six million plus German women and girls anywhere from, you know, preteen on up to, to very old women were raped by the Soviet forces. And no one knows, they're guessing somewhere between two and four million um, women in the Western area suffered the same fate, uh, principally from American and French colonial troops. The British and the regular French army and the rest of that maintained much better control, basically by hanging or shooting the people who did it. And that tended to end it. Uh, but it just that was the way that was the way we and we just and, and that's that's what convinces me, by the way, that not not that not those crimes, not, not the cleansing of German civilians or the the death or rape of of German and Japanese women and, and children, but that convinces me that the Holocaust was a fake because a lot of soldiers came back after World War II. And I remember as a as a very young child and later as a teenager hearing veterans occasionally talk about it. And they would talk about the terrible things they saw when they got into Germany or Japan and what the effects of the bombing had been, you know, and, and all of that. And the governments were not happy because these very disgruntled veterans had the nasty habit of voting <laughs> against people who did things they didn't like. And the the government in the U.S. would have grabbed onto a real Holocaust with both hands and pushed it up into the front as saying, no matter what we did, they were worse. And they didn't do it. Yeah, well, that, that's sort of what they did with Nuremberg. I don't know if you've been reading Ron Unz's recent pieces on the Holocaust, but they're, yeah, they're very good. And he makes that same point that you made, which is that in the in the 50s and to some extent, you know, getting into the 60s, the Holocaust really had kind of disappeared because most people of any sophistication just assumed that it was pretty much like the German troops tossing babies around on their bayonets in World War One. That is just war propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And so and know, that's it the, same, it's the same thing. And it's yeah, it's the same thing as the beheading babies in Gaza and the uh, that uh, young woman. I think she's the daughter of the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States or the Kuwaiti ambassador to the UN. I can't remember which one. In 1990, U- U- U.S. To, yeah. U.S. Okay, talking to a congressional committee about Iraqi soldiers uh, pulling babies from incubators and letting them die on the floor. No one thinking to ask now what would be the motivation. For a, for a Muslim soldier to pull a Muslim baby out of an incubator and let it die on the floor. Huh? Excuse me. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. when you've got a really gullible population that isn't very well educated and it doesn't know a lot, you can get away with a lot. And, you know, the gods above and below help us. But uh, the American population today is even worse. Yeah. So there's a pattern here. They make up ridiculous war propaganda and then commit atrocities and the atrocities to some extent are used to try to excuse the propaganda it may be a little harder now though with 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 the social media and people able to be reporting in mass from places like gaza and showing what's happening there there are a lot of folks getting very upset the 18 to 24 year old demographic in the u.s the majority now wants israel gone totally sides with hamas Yep. And so the, the things are, you know, we we have Aaron Bushnell uh, burning himself up, screaming free Palestine in front of the Israeli embassy. That was a pretty powerful scene this week. 
So yeah. I, I wonder whether they can keep getting away with this, making up ludicrous war propaganda and then using it to excuse their atrocities. I think they I think they can and they will. I mean, you know, we we know we being those of us who pay attention to the alternative media know an awful lot about this. Uh, but the very large majority of Americans do not. They have they, I've talked to people that don't haven't even heard about Bushnell. It has not been a non-network news, just a minimal amount of, ex, of, of notice of it. Uh, in, in 2020, the, when, when the election fraud happened in Michigan, in Wayne County, Detroit and Wayne County, Michigan, uh, it was reported once briefly on local networks and then never heard again, never said again. And that's that's the way it's treated. And unless when a story just flashes on the screen and goes away, the public attention span being very short anyway, it basically moves on to something else. And that's and what's these 18, happening 18, here. 24-year-olds, they're not getting it from the CNN screen. They're getting it from uh, their uh, online stuff. You know, they're, they're well, it's not, not even it's not even not even online. Um, I talked to someone yesterday whose grandson, I think it was a grandson, um, in college, uh, had had a friend whose family was from from either from Gaza or it, I, I think it's a fairly convoluted pattern because there was a friend of a friend of a friend, something like that. And I do not remember the, the sequence, but had the, on their cell phone showed in, in real time, what was happening on the ground. And this, this grandchild said that there was a cluster of students around it looking at this one phone. You know, <laughs> this is real time. You know, and, and the reaction was, as you can imagine, they were, first of all, they were horrified. And second, this has got to stop. And of course, that becomes automatically a rise in hate and anti-Semitism, according to the ADL. Um, because they can't they can't stop that without completely shutting down all of the Internet service providers and all of the Internet providers. They can't do that. And that makes it really difficult for censorship. But these are unfortunately also the same people who really don't have an awful lot of political power yet. And unfortunately, it is the same 18 to 24 group who are the most woke on any issue you want to pick. And because of that, if they get political power, while they may feel outrage on an issue that you and I both would like them to be outraged about, on every other issue, they're going to be hostile to most of the things that we feel strongly about. And while you have a Morocco to go to and are in Morocco, I'm looking around and I don't like sand and camels. <laughs> you're, you're stuck in Mississippi, huh? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I was very seriously. Um, a couple of friends that I were t talking over the past month and there are, there's a cone of countries in South America, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, Argentina, 
where there are large European communities, large German, Irish, and Italian communities in the first three, and in Chile, uh, the small one, but a lot of European colonies there. There, I had seen a, a video uh, in German uh, where a, a reporter from a, one of the German German web news sites was talking to a young German family, uh, young in their 20s, late 20s, uh, husband, wife, two children, packed up and left Germany because they, they, they said it was hopeless. It was simply hopeless. It was politically hopeless. It was socially hopeless. And they, they saw where it was going to go and it was down. And they got to Paraguay and they found, I mean, there were German towns there. That's how they described it in, in German. They said there were entire German towns with just a handful of native Paraguayans speakers, Spanish speakers, you know, in positions of authority, but there were some there were some Germans who had been there for two and three generations. And they were perfectly happy with it there. And it, that so if I were younger, that's what I would do. I mean if I were a young man like you, I would have, that would be a place to go. Yeah, you could do worse than Latin America. We I we actually a were lot kind of looking fun. at that at one point too. We were thinking about going to different places and and uh, that southern end of uh of south america does look pretty good in a lot of respects uh it's, so, and it's like in climate it's like here like north very much like north america you know and my my spanish is pretty good and my german is pretty good and so it would be something to, but again i'm not that young so okay well my uh my moroccan darja is getting better <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm stuck here, stuck here by the Mediterranean beach. Uh, so, so Alan, though, you're, you're, I, th- I think you're, you're right that I, I, I don't think that Aaron Bushnell is going to immediately uh, cause regime change overnight. But that factor of a uh, big, uh, you know, anger, a groundswell of anger among, especially among young people could be one factor contributing to this larger mosaic of things that I think is going to put the Zionists in a really tough position before too long. I mean, they're basically propped up by the American empire. The American empire is kind of dangling by a thread and the whole world sees this. I mean, yeah, the, the Western media has got everybody brainwashed or a lot of people brainwashed back in the States, but all over the world, there are billions and billions of people who are just outraged about this and are going to, you know, and among those many billions, uh, maybe a, a couple of billion are really going to want to do something about it long term. So I, I think the Zionists have dug their own grave. I don't think they. I, I wish I wish you were right. I wish you were correct. But I I think their degree of of control, um, in at least in in Western Europe, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, is as complete as you can imagine. Um, it would take well, a send crushing them back military. to those countries. Ah, <laughs> uh, that would be a thought. It would there would be a it would take a crushing military defeat, uh, which isn't going to happen. I mean, Afghanistan was as embarrassing as you can imagine. I never thought I would see something that would make our exit from Vietnam look good, but Afghanistan did. That was that was uh, that was a special. Um, but the control is so complete. And the particularly, and you as a former professor, as I am a former professor, understand this, I'm sure, 
their control of the educational system and the narrative inculcated in the educational system, you know, from preschool through post-grad is just so complete. It has been driving, it has been driving the narrative for effectively reducing the level of American education to the lowest common denominator, which is that of black America, and that is very, very low indeed. This is what the whole DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is about, you know, and it is the last stage of the process. You know, I was... Wait a minute, black black America tends to actually see through these lies that we're talking about, sees through Zionist power and Zionist BS. Black America may or may not see through it, but black America in power ruins almost every neighborhood, every city, every school where it controls and takes power, every single one. That is a reality. It's a statistical reality. If we were to take, you know, I don't know how you feel about Sharia law, and I'm not going to ask you, but if we were to take something like the Taliban and their associates and put them in, say, outsource, let, let them control the justice system in places like Baltimore and Memphis and St. Louis for a year, they'd depopulate the cities. <laughs> well, I, you may be overestimating <laughs> the, uh, uh, the murderous capacity of the Taliban. You may not remember, Alan, but back when the Taliban was getting all of that publicity as you know being a bunch of really vicious head choppers, what they were actually doing was bringing murderers and such into a stadium and then the stadium would be full of people and they would have trials and those convicted of murder would then be basically handed over to the mercy of the victim's relatives who would then get to choose whether to carry out the execution themselves or uh, to uh, have mercy and essentially let the person go in return for blood money, which the Taliban, by the way, would strongly, strongly urge them to do, and which actually turned out to be, I believe, the majority outcome. So the yeah. Taliban, actually, if you want to criticize them, it wasn't that not, they were cutting cutting off heads and executing people. It was that they were letting murderers go free by virtue of their extreme love of mercy. I wasn't criticizing them. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're. you're <laughs> I up, I upload. I up, in fact, I uploaded a video onto my BitChute channel, uh, which was taken from within Afghanistan fairly recently, and it was it was basically showing uh, Taliban courts. And you're quite right. I mean, they, they, it's there's a degree of flexibility there, but there's also some inflexibility, is in that. Uh, they uh, they don't they don't like the idea of recidivism, of having people repeat the same thing. And I like I can this. kind of relate to that. I, I, I do also on it. But I was I was being slightly facetious, but I'm, it, it's very serious. I, I remember when when Baltimore and St. Louis were nice places in the, in the 1970s. And I know what they are now and I've been to them. And it's interesting to watch that there hasn't been an improvement in their condition. And it, there can't be. 
when the, you have the level of education and you have basically a a collage of programs intended to keep any kind of accountability and responsibility in place, it's very hard to see how things can get better. And the problem that I have with this 18 to 24 generation, as I mentioned, you know, they're, they are the, the wokest of the, the working generations of the uh, voting generations, I guess you would say, um, is that on, on almost every other issue, their policy positions overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly to a degree of eight to two, uh, support what the Democrats are doing, what, what the Biden administration is doing. And you can't just, not you personally, but one cannot simply pull out an issue where they seem to be correct, thinking correctly. And I think they are on this issue, on the issue of, of Gaza. I think they are thinking correctly and fail to recognize that on everything else, you know, that's like a stopped clock that's right twice a day. The rest of the time it's wrong. And that that sort of led into the second thing that I that I mentioned to you that I wanted to wanted to talk about. You know, I I think this border, the border wars which is there's no other way to describe them the border wars and the mass migration it's it is going is the death of the country there's no question at all about it the only question is when the edifice collapses and not if it's going to collapse and that what i was surprised to see a, a conservative republican group put up some data a few days ago and it, it did indicate that something around 8 million or so illegals had come in so far during the Biden administration um, with nearly 400,000 on the southern border alone in December. But that during the Trump administration, with Republicans sitting there applauding this uh, this guy I used to call a Mussolini with hair, and then I realized I was defaming Mussolini. Uh, during the Trump administration, 2.4 million illegals had come across the southern border. Well, that's this better than Biden. Like, <laughs> pardon me? That, that is better than, than Biden, but still. It's, oh, it's, be it's better than Biden. But, you know, I was talking to someone that, about this and said, but he said, but, but, Trump wanted to stop them. I said, he didn't. <laughs> that was the end of it. You know, and that's, that's the factor. But, you know, we, you look at this, and I think the fact that Americans have let this happen, regardless of their government, regardless of their government, is the most telling sign that the heart is gone from this country. The real heart is gone from it. It has all the trappings of, you know, people like to stand around with their AR-15s and their camis and the rest of that and talk about how the Second Amendment is important and, you know, we're Americans, we'll stand up, but they don't. They don't. And that is, that is the most, that is the absolutely the most fatal sign of it. 
let me let me throw a slightly different perspective at you here, Ellen. And I, I would argue that the you're talking about symptoms here. Uh, you're talking about the you know high crime rates and you know poorly governed big cities that you're you're blaming on black folks rule. And you're talking about you know, eight and ten million people coming over the border in the past couple of administrations. And I would argue that both of those are symptoms of the same thing, which is the destruction of the family unit, both in white and black families. It's obviously much worse in black families where the great majority of children are born out of wedlock, which produces a culture of, well, uh, a lack of discipline. And I, I think it's my observation has been that uh, black people seem to do better when they have some kind of structure or discipline, just like I do. I mean, maybe maybe I'm part black because I needed that five times a day praying kind of discipline and you know, similar <laughs> things that came with Islam to become a productive citizen. And likewise, if you look at people, you know, the, the uh, black Muslims, whether the Nation of Islam or other uh, African-Americans who've come to Islam and gotten some discipline and started uh, be you know having families, <laughs> family ties. Mm-hmm. Sure. They tend to live pretty productive lives and be good at organizing things. If they if those folks ran the cities, they wouldn't be in such bad shape. And likewise, if white people were still marrying and having children and having a strong family unit, the birth rate would be high enough that the policy wonks who say we need huge numbers of younger people to keep this whole econ- economic machine running. Uh, wouldn't be dialing open the border. So the whole thing is the problem is the breakdown of the family. And where does that come from? The breakdown in religion. Your take. Okay. Uh, I'll take the, except for the breakdown in religion, uh, I'll I'll leave that to theologians and other people. Let me sort of back into that. I think the, the current administration would dial open the borders anyway because they understand, they understand that the people, particularly from Central America, who are coming in, are very much aware of the Patron concept. I, I see lots of these Central Americans in Central Mississippi, which is not a border state of uh, along the along Mexico. Um, they understand that most of the, these people coming in will vote Democrat. They will vote for the people who brought them here, let them come in here gave them money, and they have money, gave them cars, they have cars, gave them nice clothes, they already have nice clothes, gave them cash, because I see them paying cash for things at Walmart on a regular basis. This is now a common thing. Two years ago, it wasn't. It simply wasn't. So the under, the understanding, I think, on the part of the Democrats is while they can steal elections and do and have, uh, at least from 2018 on, I think 2016 was their wake-up call when they actually had a relatively honest election and they lost to their surprise. After that, there hasn't been an an election that hasn't had fraud in it. But they understand that dialing open the borders gives them a lot more voters. Uh, And even if most of them don't vote, those who do vote eventually will at some point in the future be theirs. On the second, on the first point that you made, of the family structure, I fully agree with you. A good good family structure is important to the stability of of any society, and it's not that it takes a village to raise a child, and which has to be one of the stupidest things said by anyone, even Hillary Clinton, uh, that I've ever heard. 
It takes a strong family structure throughout history. Whether you talk about a clan or a family, it takes a, the strong family. Uh, I grew up without one. I grew up, I was raised by a single mother. Uh, the only thing that saved me from ending up very badly uh, was enlisting in the Marines. And that's where I got my discipline. I got it pounded into me by my drill instructor. So there is that alternative. There you go. Um, Whether it's a law or a drill instructor, it doesn't matter. It's yeah, discipline. Yeah. And, and the thing is that they, they may both be certain. A law may be certain in the long term, but I can assure you a drill instructor is very certain in the short term, or at least was. These days, I think they're supposed to be nice. Uh, but I've been living, I, I have been living, That that's true, by the way. Uh, I have been living in what was a 50% black neighborhood in a 60% black city in 1995 is now a 98% black neighborhood in a 90% black city in Mississippi. And I have seen this. I have seen to have day in and day out experience. And there are a small number of decent, hardworking black people who are as good neighbors as you want to find anywhere. And there is a very large majority who are not. And yes, most of them come from from broken homes or with from homes with no no coherent family structure. The unfortunate part of that or the unfortunate part of that issue is that I ran across uh, an almost buried article in the Detroit Free Press, which is, you may or may not know from, from your Wisconsin days, is a Democrat paper in Detroit. And it was from 1958. And at that point, most of the major cities were, I guess about half of the major cities, I shouldn't say most, about half of the major cities had Republican mayors. The other half had Democrat mayors. As far as I can tell, they were all white mayors. Um, there were black minorities in every city. I don't think any one of the major cities had a black majority at that time in, in the 1950s. And the article, looking back at 1956, when the black family structure was still intact and before the welfare state implemented by, by Lyndon Johnson in, in 1967, and they were talking about the the problems caused by the extraordinarily high rates of Negro crime in every one of their cities. Now, those the two factors of a welfare state and a family structure were not were not were not problems then. No welfare state existed. The family structure was intact, and these mayors were still concerned. Nor were there black majority cities. And these mayors were still concerned about that. And I, I think I think crime was different back then, Ellen. Back back then, you know, the the juvenile delinquents who whipped out switchblades were really really bad. And and so I mean I'd have to see some statistics to get a sense of of. I would too. What I would too. And I, I I tried. In fact, I I, I emailed back uh, and asked if they they had any any supporting information on this. I never got a response. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it is also politically incorrect. That's for sure. It is also very politically incorrect on it. But, you know, it was, it was one of those things that I, I watched this um, 
as a as a grad student in Michigan, I watched it go from it being you know the whole civil rights movement. You know, after the the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, and then of course the, the welfare cornucopia put into place by by the Democrats in '67. Well, actually, it was '66 and '67, if I remember correctly. And the first idea was equal opportunity. You're going to strike down legal barriers, give give everyone, not just blacks, but everyone an equal shot. And it didn't work. And so then affirmative action came along. And that wasn't going anywhere because people people really the people would leave. They would leave an area rather than have to try and deal with affirmative action programs. And so that's when you begin to break down the neighborhood schools as well as the family structure on the, by forced busing. And this continued on, and it's not the specific issue or the specific race or the specific people involved. It is that there was an escalating, not escalating in a rapid sense, but a creeping increase in the degree of invasive federal government policies into family life and behavior. And that set the stage for the catastrophe that we now have. I sit here and I look at what is happening in our schools. What at the presence of pornography in elementary schools at the existence of these um, mentally deranged transgenders. Not all are mentally deranged, by the way. A few are failed male athletes who decided to identify as women so they could win something. But the large, those, those who don't aren't in that little category are mentally deranged. And this is being taught as as gospel, lowercase g, to young young children. And most of the parents are quiet, and most of the parents who advocate it and support it are the mothers. Not the fathers, it's the mothers. And I just look at this, you know, with, with a I don't know whether it's a it's a sense of dismay or a sense of disbelief. Dismay that it's happening and disbelief that it's allowed to happen and no one stands up and says, no. No, I will not accept this. I will not have this. You're not allowed to say no. You'll be be deplatformed if you stand up and say no. You'll be you'll, you'll be deplatformed. You'll go to jail. Yeah, you can yeah, commit. You can commit. You know, you can commit murder as long as the victim is white or Asian, and probably Muslim, uh, and get away with it. But the gods forbid that you ever criticize an LGBTQ plus 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 whatever the gender goulash happens to be policy or person in any position and the weight of the law will come down on you. 
Yeah, it and is all very it, strange, isn't it? It's not really strange. It's a it's a very it's a very interesting backhanded compliment to the sophistication of those and I'm, I'm sure it's a small number of elite Jews in very significant positions of financial and political power who who decided for and would have to get into the psychology of that and I'm not a psychologist um, that that European civilization and culture had to go. And this is the way they're doing it. And it's really strange because um, elite Jews have disproportionately contributed to European civilization, especially once they were emancipated in the 19th century. I I understand that. I understand that. And I think and I think that when we talk elite Jews, it's it's interesting to note. And you may or may not be aware of this. But in 1948, Menachem Begin, who then uh, claimed to fame was head of the Irgun in Israel, you know, the fellow who later became prime minister, uh, was going to visit the United States. And the New York Times published an open letter signed by several dozen of these elite Jews, including Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt, calling on the American government not to let Begin in, not to meet with him, describing him as a terrorist, all the rest of that. Now, these days, the New York Times would never publish such a letter. And these days, such a letter would never be written. But in the late 1940s, it was. And I fully agree with you. You know, until, in fact, that was that was the thesis uh, of one of my articles, which I'm sure you never read, on anti-Semitism on the many faces of anti-Semitism, which basically said, you know, without Israel, there was no problem. I mean, there were, they had a disproportionate, uh, not disproportionate, they had an extraordinary reputation, Jews had an extraordinary reputation of contributions to society, an extraordinary reputation and well-deserved reputation for philanthropy, and they did a great number of good things. But once Israel came onto the ground, once the Zionists became the controlling force of secular Judaism, and it was directed to support of Israel, all of those good qualities went away, or if not went away, were subordinated, were subordinated to what Israel wanted and needed. You'll note that every one of the universities Who's had, which have had major donors pull their money from them because those same students we discussed earlier were criticizing Israel for its behavior in Gaza. They were Jews. And it was Jewish money and Jewish donors who backed away from it and, and so, withheld their support, even though they had to know what was happening. I mean, they knew what was happening and they didn't care. So where is the where does this disregard for truth come from? I mean, we see it in people like that who who know what's happening and don't care. 
we have this widespread acceptance of these ridiculous propaganda lies about Hamas and the Palestinians, such as the intercepts uh, just recently exposed how these lies about uh, weaponized rape and things like that were foisted on the New York Times. New York Times has put under review the Israeli journalist who was responsible for regurgitating all of these dredging up these ridiculous lies. Actually, she couldn't find any any evidence of rape at all. So, you know, she had to really, really push and finally got some people to make up some crazy stuff. Uh, but uh, in any case, where where does this utter and complete disregard for truth come from that we weren't we didn't see that from people like Einstein and Hannah Arendt, did we? Or, or no, did we, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't see it at all. It's, it's from from people who and, and I for whatever reason. Once Israel came onto the scene, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, the preservation of Israel became the, both the end and the justification for the means to that end. And it was a combination of money, control of the money markets, and control of the media. And it was a very gradual process. You know, as like I said, the in the, the today the new, the letter would never be written. You couldn't find enough prominent Jewish academics to write that letter, and you couldn't wouldn't find the New York Times publishing it if such a letter were written and came across their desk. So we wouldn't do it. And yeah, when, when, an, when I, the Arab South terrorist comes now, like when Netanyahu comes to Washington, the entire Congress gives him a, a protracted standing ovation. In fact, they, I think it was 27 standing ovations on his last time. Any American president would be would be purple and green with envy at the thought of being able to be given 27 standing ovations by the entire Congress. Well, they own, they own Congress. You and I both know that. Uh, both directly through the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and indirectly through the local affiliates and local money that goes into their into their districts and their states. And it's whether it's a formal contract, as some former members of Congress have alleged, or an informal understanding, um, abstention is sort of accepted and an occasional bit of criticism can be tolerated as long as it doesn't call into question basic Israeli policies or anything that might question the legitimacy of Israel as a state. And anything else, whether it be through bribery, blackmail, or genuine commitment, I think Chuck Schumer, for example, genuinely is committed to Israel. Other people are bribed or blackmailed into it. Everyone on this earth has skeletons in their closet. I don't care who they are. Uh, that might not be a personal problem, but would be a political problem, either in a primary or in a election campaign if they survive the primary. And this combination of things matters politically. And when you combine media, money, and Congress, to say nothing of the executive branch and the presidency, half of Biden's cabinet is Jewish. Half of Trump's cabinet is Jewish, was Jewish. And that's I'm not quite sure when that started. I, I think that it began with the Clinton administration, uh, that prominence uh, and then continued on. It took a while to build that power. But with that combination of things, 
there can be an awful lot of unhappiness out there. And as long as the, the story, the main story continues, most people will not know that the New York Times is reviewing the, the reports of rape. And if there are retractions, it'll be usually a small section on the back page, not, some, not, a, not a headline on the front, like the initial allegations. That's usually what they do. And it may not even be mentioned if it's, if it's on the electronic news. Yeah, well, today there was another example after the Israelis fired on starving Palestinians who were lined up to get food from a, a food aid flower distribution center and killed over 100 of them. Uh, the Israelis tried to blame the victims and the American press worded their headlines in such a way as to confuse the issue of, of this yep. very simple thing that happened, right? Uh, huge crowd of Palestinians starving and trying to line up for food, and then they get shot at uh, with machine guns and tanks. I mean, it's really yep, pretty I noticed. Yeah, I saw that. And, that and, and, that's, and that's what control of the media, control of the media and the money is the, is the domestic political equivalent of, in the military, in battle, controlling the high ground. If you've got the high ground, you can do almost anything you want. And the high ground these days, tactically, is control of the air. Uh, and the Israelis have that, but and both air and air waves. And so with that type of a thing, almost everything that the Israelis do is presented to the American people either as a good thing or if it really is really, really, really bad. So confused in, a, in its, not only its, its heading, but in the story that's written or said on the air with it, that people don't really know what to understand. And because they're confused, they go on to something simpler they can understand, like, you know, what's the score in the last NBA game? Okay, I guess that's a pretty good description of reality, which I, th I hope that that reality <laughs> will change before too long as the American empire pursues such self-destructive policies that it won't be able to prop up these genocidal lunatics in occupied Palestine for too much longer. But uh, before we go, we only have a couple of minutes uh, tell me, you wanted to talk about the pride of Carthage. <laughs> what about the pride of Carthage? I, you know, I've, I've gotten more emails and texts and comments about about my comments on Carthage, I think, than I have on, on almost anything else I've spoken on. I, sh I should really figure out how the Carthaginians played into 9-11, and I might become a, the, one of the best-known and best-invited speakers on this planet. Carthaginians um, did it. Yeah, the Carthaginians did it. The Pride of Carthage is the name of a novel, a historical novel, and I'm blanking out on the author. Uh, that's when I'm 82 years old. I'm allowed to blank out on some things. Um, but it's a really good study of the role of the Barca family, Hannibal Barca, Hannibal, one of the great captains of history, and his three brothers, and the family structure, and how they, how they proceeded to fight Rome during the Second Punic War. Third uh, century BC, and there's some interesting lessons in it, which I think are really a fight. One thing is that uh, when I when I was doing my graduate work in the 1970s, I became aware of a conservative group called the League to Save Carthage. That's what it was called. 
<laughs> and because they saw America not as Rome reborn, but as Carthage, a commercial state. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. If you think about that yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the Maritime Empire. Yeah, yeah, it's there's some really interesting connotations on that. Cool. Well, we're, we're going to have to do just to that in, in depth next month because the bumper music is playing in the background. Okay, I, I heard that. Kevin, I'm glad we got through this. Remember, to those of you who are listening, Cubes is the operating system. Cubes with a Q. I'll be happy to help anyone who wants to install it. It seems to be working. Congratulations on beating Unit 8200. Alan Zarate, <laughs> see you next month. <laughs> Inshallah. Thank you, Kevin. All Bye-bye. the best to you. Thanks. Back in the next hour, Peter Koenig and Eric Wahlberg. We'll be right back after this message.